0: A Podcast One Production. Imagine you're a research librarian. You've spent your life buried in books in notes, in paper of every kind. And now you're falling behind. Every job to cross your desk carries even more paper, more books, more notes. You feel as though you're drowning in information. And then, while someone shows you a magic machine that will solve all of your problems, how would that feel?
1: What I did have an idea was this stuff is great. <laughs> I mean, no more whiteout, no more three layers of carbon paper, no more three
2: by five little cars. But Thousands of references on. I mean, when
3: I saw that, I thought, oh, I'm in heaven.
0: That's Elizabeth Jake Feinler, research librarian at SRI, after she's gotten her hands on the first truly interactive computer, the online system created by visionary Douglas Engelbart, shown to the world for the first time on the 9th of December, 1968. Jake references a few things that don't really exist in common use anymore carbon paper, whiteout, even index cards, because of what happened on the 9th of December. 1968.
4: So was that when the world began? Well, in the words of Mark Weber, curator at the Computer History Museum, it's certainly when this world
1: began. It really is the beginning of the online world. So there's many other aspects. Um, you know, it's the beginning of personal computing, some people say. It's the beginning of word processing and video conferencing and many other things. But I guess from my own perspective as a historian of the web and the internet, it really is kind of the kickoff for cyberspace.
4: This is the beginning. This is it. Right here. Everything that we do online or in front of a computer, it has an origin point. An origin point that's mostly faded from memory. Though at the time it made quite an impression to a young computer researcher named Charles Irby.
1: I came in a little bit late, it was very
2: crowded, I ended up standing along the wall, and most of the people in the room kind of didn't know what to expect, I think. And suddenly there was this demo presented for
1: about 45 minutes that was mind expanding. It was uh, so different from the context of what most people thought computing was for in those days. It was essentially Fortran ballistics programs or COBOL programming systems.
3: And it was
1: just so
2: incredibly different and, to me, set the course for my
0: whole future career.
4: Within a year, Charles Irby was working with Doug Engelbart. The mother of all demos did more than change the course of computing. It changed
0: lives. In this final episode of 1968, When the World Began, we'll talk to people whose lives were shaped by the demo Whether or not they were in the room to see it, and we'll reveal the hidden hand of one person who worked behind the scenes to make it all happen. And at the end, we'll visit another birth, another reason to return to 1968.
4: It was the best of times and the worst of times.
0: It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness.
4: It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness,
0: it was the summer of riots.
4: Heading to a winter of despair, it was 1968
0: when the world began.
4: Hi, this is Mark Pesci of The Next Billion Seconds. A bit later in our program, we'll be joined by my co-host on this four-episode miniseries, Dr. Genevieve Bell. On the 9th of December 2018, 50 years to the day after the mother of all demos, a commemoration of the demo and the work of Douglas Engelbart was held at the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley. It turned out to be an amazing gathering of individuals who took that great project forward. First among these must surely be Jeff Roloffson, the lead programmer for the NLS. That's the demo machine. But we'll let Jeff tell the story of how he ended up working with Doug Engelbart. And I found this odd group of guys
2: with long hair uh, from the Project Genie at Berkeley. Uh, Mel Purdle, Butler Lampson, Peter Deutsch. And I started working with them. And before I knew what happened, I was helping Peter debug his debugger. And uh, Doug came by because he knew them. Mm-hmm. And he started talking with me. And we talked and we talked and we went to lunch and we kept talking and I didn't go to any more meetings. I went to um, just hung out with Butler and Peter and I didn't go home. I came to SRI with Doug and I interviewed at SRI and Stanford and got a job offer from SRI that day and got accepted into the honors co-op program and went home to Seattle and told my wife we're moving to Menlo Park.
0: Doug Engelbart offered a vision for computing beyond banks or bombs. It's no surprise Jeff Roloffson found that captivating enough to move 1,500 kilometres. Was that enough on its own to change the world? No. Vision and charisma were necessary, but insufficient. You needed funding, and as this was the United States government money, you needed someone who could grease the political wheels. You needed Bob Taylor.
4: Bob Taylor was the third of the directors of ARPA's Information Processing Technologies Office, a post first held by J.C.R. Licklider, and then Ivan Sutherland. As Jeff Roloffson recounts, they're all connected.
2: Well, a part they don't know about yeah. is that Licklider was friends with Vannevar Bush. At MIT? At MIT, because Vannevar Bush was Mr. Analog Computer at MIT and whatnot. And... So Lick knew about Manavar's paper in the Atlantic monthly. And he had brought Ivan Sutherland into that. So Ivan knew about Bush's paper also. So then, and Doug, totally independently, without any knowledge of these guys, had found it and, and read it and been motivated by it. So when, when, and Doug was contacting ARPA to try to get funding for his mouse studies uh, and at the time, Ivan was uh, uh, the program director. So Doug was going to Ivan. And then Ivan actually was the, the program manager inside ARPA that funneled the money to NASA to do the original mouse studies. I have some funny stories about that. So when Doug and Ivan met, they clicked. Because they went back to Vannevar Bush. They had the same vision through Licklider, blah, blah, blah. And then and Ivan they,
4: and they both understood interactivity because of Sketchpad and NLS sort of being right, two sides of the right. same coin. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yep. One of the first things Doug Digg when I came on the project was take me down to, to uh, Caltech to meet Ivan. So, um, so Ivan left and Licklider brought in Taylor, and and Taylor was actually a psychologist, which is what Lick wanted because he wanted to stress this interactive communication stuff, and then just inculcated Taylor with the Vannevar Bush document linking structure using computers for communication stuff. And so Taylor was in the loop about that. Taylor was um, much more of a manager and a manipulator than Ivan. And he really took on the job. You know, inside ARPA, when you want to do a project like this, even today in DARPA, you have to go find sponsors in the DoD somehow that you link up and these these projects aren't just a project that ARPA funds but there's sort of a consortium that you put together of of key people in the Air Force or the Navy or something like that that chip in funding and there's cross communication that goes on so Taylor was a master at manipulating all of that inside the Pentagon and uh, and then And then I think he's the one that came up with the vision of, let's do the demo.
4: Let's do the demo. It sounds so simple for something so bold. But Taylor had a bigger vision. It's Taylor who put in motion the funding for the first bits of what would become the Internet. And he realized that Doug's online system could be that new Internet's killer app.
2: This whole thing was planned. So... So at the time, and even at at well before, back in, I think, 67, um, maybe late 66, I don't know. um, He had a vision of networking the computers. So he had the vision of the ARPANET, and NLS was going to be the application on the ARPANET. He had both those in mind. Mm -hmm. And also then being the IPT director, information processing technique director, Taylor was the program manager for all the big sites that were doing all the important research.
4: J.C.R. Licklider kicked off that research with boatloads of government money. Ivan Sutherland made sure plenty of it flowed toward Doug Engelbart. Now Bob Taylor wanted to create a vast network of computers all running Doug software. None of this had ever been done before. None of it had even ever been tried but Taylor trusted Doug and his group to deliver. So as the day of the demo grew closer, Taylor started putting the word out. So what happened was,
2: you know, we got clearance to do the demo. We spent a boatload of ARPA money, and Taylor seated the audience by going to all of his different sites and saying, you need to send this person, this person, this person. And, and so of the 2,000 people in the audience maybe one or 200 of them, were key researchers from these projects. Often the PIs wouldn't come, but the graduate students would. So many of them were the hot graduate students. I was sort of in that set with Taylor. And, and it worked.
0: And boy, did it ever work. Part of the reason for that wasn't Doug or Jeff. It was because of Bill English. He's the very shy fellow whom Doug greets in the very first public video conference. Bill had a background in electrical engineering and theater.
2: That was mainly Bill English. Bill was both a, uh, a double E, and I think not positive, you need to look this up. I think he had an MFA in theater. Yeah, he was very, very active in that, doing set design and lighting and actually working with him as a volunteer. And uh, he brought in, he's, he was big friends with Stuart Brandt, and we used to write articles for the Whole Earth mm-hmm. Catalog. And he and Stewart were in charge of
0: all of that stuff. The mother of all demos was so dramatic because it was designed to be a bit of theatre. And yes, it most certainly worked.
2: Everybody was blown away and all these guys would go back to their sites with this new vision about everything. And then, and then, Taylor wasn't quite sure the ARPANET was gonna work, but, but by mid 70, I think. Uh, He had enough confidence that the next big project then was to make NLS available over the
4: ARPANET to go out to the sites. When we return, we'll look at how the demo changed the world, both for the folks in the room and for folks who'd never even heard of it. Welcome back to the final episode of 1968 when the world began as we look at the enormous impact of the Mother of all demos. That impact can still be felt 50 years later in the stories told by the people in that room on the 9th of December 1968. One of those was Andy Van Dam. Andy was already an up-and-coming talent in the field of computing and had by now spent a few years working through some of the basics of what we’d now call word processing. But the demo, that took all of it to another level. Here's Andy.
1: It was mind blowing to use the vernacular that was invented right about that time, but it was orders of magnitude beyond any showmanship I'd ever seen. In fact, I thought it might have been fake. So it was it so was amazing, so amazing, and so beyond anything I had encountered. And I questioned Doug pretty aggressively afterwards, and. He remained absolutely calm and gentlemanly, answered all my questions and said, uh, hey, come and check it out and come to my lab, spend a couple of days and you can learn as much as you like. And during the time just in that room, having him answer at least some of my questions and then afterwards when I did go to the lab, I became convinced that I just witnessed a huge, huge advance in the state of the art. Andy went to Doug's lab and
4: met Jeff Roloffson.
2: So, he was in the audience, and then he didn't believe what happened. Yeah. And he went up and talked to Doug, and Doug said, you need to go down to Menlo Park and talk to Jeff. So, Andy came down, and, and for two days, he sat in my office, and I went through the system in huge detail. I mean, he was just blown away how I'd engineered this thing down to such a small amount of code, and using these general mechanisms and whatnot, and uh, took copious notes and went home and wrote them up, and then he'd mail them to me in paper form, and I'd edit and go back and forth. And that was the best documentation of NLS that was ever done.
4: Wow. It was written by Andy. Andy wasn't working for Doug or SRI, yet he felt compelled to document what he'd seen in the mother of all demos. And in the years following, he'd become known as the author of the definitive textbook on computer graphics, following in the footsteps of Doug Engelbart, Jeff Roloffson, and
0: Ivan Sutherland. You didn't even have to be in the room to be profoundly influenced by the demo. Vince Cerf, the father of the internet, should have been there. It
3: wasn't. It was December of 1968, I was down in Los Angeles. I was probably doing either something at UCLA or Steve Crocker and I, I think, uh, were working uh, for a company, Jacobi Systems. We were building a timesharing system as a front end to uh, a mainframe computer. So uh, I, I just wasn't there for that event, but I certainly heard about it. I think this was uh, the ripples, uh, mm. you know, the, propagated very rapidly, it was hard to believe that it was possible not only to do the demo itself, Mm. which was a tour de force, as we've heard today, but showing what it meant to uh, interact with text, Uh, this completely different way of understanding content and Mm. interacting with it, to say nothing of the collaborative element, which uh, Doug was articulate about, It's the
4: first internet workstation, and the internet wasn't going to exist for another year, right? right. Well,
3: in a sense, that's right. I mean, also kind of like a World Wide Web in a box because of all the hyperlinking and so on. The sharing of documents, the ability to uh, interact with each other directly while you're working on a document, which we do regularly today at Google, we do it with more than two people. Uh, and it's still as dramatic now as it was then, because not too many people have had the experience of working on the same document at the same time. And uh, when I look back at what Doug was able to do with the primitive technology of the time, for you know, set aside the demo, which itself was crazy. Yes. I mean, you know, you can't do that. Well, the thing is so dramatic because he used very risky technology in order to show this thing. Uh, I think it's also very important to recognize that DARPA apparently wanted to have that demo happen. And I have a list of other demos that ARPA has I- insisted on, asked for, you know, requested, required, uh, that have been pivotal right. in uh, in I would say industry thinking. And so this is another example of an institution that chooses or has chosen particular ways of confronting the, uh, the community with new ideas, with challenging ideas that, that are of the form, gee, I didn't know you could do that.
4: Bob Taylor's plan had worked beyond All expectation. The demo had reached the right people at the right time with the right message about the right technologies used in the right way to augment human intelligence. The dream evoked by Vannevar Bush, passed on to J.C.R. Licklider, Ivan Sutherland, and Doug Engelbart had, with Bob Taylor, become reality. Or at least part of it did. At this year's commemoration, many people reflected on the unfinished revolution. That this is more than a mouse or a link or a video conference. It's about a new way for us to work together to solve our problems. That's what Vannevar and Licklider and Sutherland and Engelbart and Taylor all really wanted. The tech, the tech was just a means to an end. But the end, well that still looks some ways away. Howard Rheingold was a young writer who pestered his way into Doug's lab because he was so excited by what he saw unfolding in the Human Augmentation Research Center. 50 years on, he reckons we're still a bit too focused on the tech rather than on ourselves.
1: The important thing that I think ought to be said about the demo is that uh, Doug, towards the end of his life, I think in an interview, was asked, how, how much of your, your vision has come about? And uh, he said so, something between 2 and 3%. And it's the it's the non-tangible parts that I think are, in a larger sense, the most interesting. And I think if he was around today, he would see a lot of the the, the soft stuff around collective intelligence. And if you... Um, look at some of the work on how, how exactly did that come about Doug's H-L-A-M-T humans using language artifacts methodology and training yeah. w- would fit right in with that and you know the, the artifacts are literally a multi-billion fold more important, more powerful now yeah. but the, the human, the soft stuff, this is the so- social stuff Really has not advanced. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is necessarily interdisciplinary.
0: To solve our problems, even with Doug's incredible tools for human intelligence augmentation, requires us all to work together.
4: Now, although incomplete, the revolution did not fail. It shaped the world. So much so that a young programmer working at CERN, the atom smasher in Switzerland, built upon Doug's work and the demo without ever having heard of it. Sir Tim Berners-Lee is the father of the web and although the NLS is the first instance of a hypertech system, Tim didn't even know about it 30 years ago when he dreamed up his own worldwide web.
5: Well, I think for me, I'm sort of the very, more of a, uh, a sort of third hand uh, well, in this by the time, uh, by the time, you know, I'm 1989. Yeah. Um, so uh, the internet is 20 years old. So the demo, uh, like Ted Nelson's work on hypertext, is filtered into the way people think about computers. It's right. filtered into the way uh, people build the hypertext into, you uh, know, there were links and things. You'd click on links and you'd end up at a glossary or you'd, or you'd end up at a subsection or something. Um, and so that. The, to a certain extent, the language of links have been, was in the computing world. It's just nobody imagined it going across the planet. Right. And so I just had to put those two together. I, so I think that the... uh the uh, So I didn't... I didn't personally come across that, uh, any of I, I, I don't know if Doug's work or any of Ted's work until I built the web and then people said, said Oh, oh was, did you see this Hey, thing? you built a fiber system, you should check these out. But the, <laughs> see, the, the interesting thing is that I guess it had so suffused the world that
4: by the time you come along to it, it seems to you like this is the natural thing we should be doing, right? Because it's become, in a sense, has it become part of our expectation?
5: It's partly about the user interface the language. No, when you click on something, you know, if you turn something a funny color, uh, and then people will click on it to find out what happens. And so um, uh, that was already part of the language uh, um, in 1989.
4: Over its first 20 years, the demo had evolved from shining vision to casual expectation. Of course things should work that way. And maybe that's why a generation of engineers and visionaries who had no knowledge of the demo were still responding to it 25 years later, although barely six years old in 1968. Tony Parisi, who was a guest on this show a few episodes back when we examined the new technology of augmented reality. So Tony was profoundly influenced by the work of Doug Engelbart and by the genius of Ivan Sutherland 25 years after after the mother of all demos and the sword of damocles it's december
6: 1993 my wife and i moved to san francisco we needed a change at that point i discovered the world wide web this browser called mosaic i was working in the internet and looking for my next thing when i moved to san francisco it felt like five minutes after i got here i also discovered some other amazing technology i saw real-time rendering on a PC, a really modest personal computer, modest by today's standards for sure. And before I knew it, I got involved in working on a project that brought those things together: the World Wide Web and 3D. I, you know, I had a background in hypertext, hypermedia, graphical user interfaces. I'd played around with some 3D graphics programming, but this brought all those things together, and and I realized there was an opportunity to kind of work on this canon of virtual reality I'd been reading about, Snow Crash, Neuromancer, all the science fiction-y stuff, maybe it was uh, was time to kind of play with that and start working on that. So I got involved in a project that came to be known as VRML, the Virtual Reality Markup Language, and built the first 3D interface to the World Wide Web. Ended up working on that project with someone who's become a dear friend and collaborator of mine for these last 25 years, Mark Pesci. It's 50 years since the
4: mother of all demos, 25 years since Tony Parisi and I brought the hyperlink and virtual reality together in VRML. I was vaguely aware of the NLS, vaguely familiar with Ivan Sutherland, though more through his firm Evans and Sutherland than anything else. I had no specific knowledge, neither did Tony, but the entire world of computing had been shaped by the work of Vannevar Bush and J.C.R. Licklider and Bob Taylor and Sutherland and Engelbart. It's the world we inhabited in 1993, a world that began in 1968. In the words of another famous demo, one more thing. Something else happened in 1968 alongside the demo, alongside the Sword of Damocles. Let's let Genevieve take it from here.
0: So 1968 matters for yet another reason. It matters because at that same joint computing conference in December in San Francisco, one more person made one more piece of history. So there was Engelbart. And the mother of all demos. There was Sutherland and the sword of Damocles and there was George Forsyth, a mathematician from Stanford University who came to that conference with a 10-page document and that document was the outline of computer science. And in 1968, what that means is that computer science was invented at a conference surrounded by 10,000 other people in a Romeo document. And it was the outline of this world, So we can talk about the world that 1968 built in terms of technologies, but we also need to talk about it in terms of a different kind of idea. And for me, the notion that there was a moment before computer science existed and a moment afterwards is a pivot point of critical importance. And for me, at least, as I think about 2018 and beyond, and I think about building the next applied science and the next branch of engineering, there is something incredibly powerful in knowing that there was a moment in December 1968 when someone else did exactly the same thing.
4: So here we are at the end of a journey through art, interactivity, augmentation, and a vision for improving human capacity that definitively shaped the last billion seconds. One thing is clear, we're just getting started because so much still has to change within us.
0: This episode was recorded on a laptop, on a phone, edited in real time in Sydney, in San Francisco, because of what happened on December 9th, 1968.
4: Thanks to Jake Feinler, Charles Irv, Mark Weber, Jeff Rulufson, Andy Van Dam, Vince Cerf, Howard Reingold, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and Tony Parisi for adding their voices to our story. Thanks to the Engelbart Institute for letting us use audio from the mother of all demos. There's one book that proved particularly instrumental in our research. The Dream Machine, J.C.R. Licklider, and the Revolution That Made Computing Personal by Mitchell Waldrop. It's well worth the read. If you want to learn more about any of our guests or watch some of the footage from the Engelbart Symposium, just drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's nextbillionseconds.com. 1968, when the world began, was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell, and sound production, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci
0: and Genevieve Bell, thanking thanking you for listening.
3: listening. And a very final credit goes to my wife and daughters who are out here to whom I'd like to dedicate this whole presentation because of what they've put up with over these years with a husband that dedicated in a monomaniacal way to something very wild. And uh, so this whole presentation is dedicated to you, four people there. And I thank all the rest of you very much for coming to the dedication ceremonies.